back in a previous life, um, when I was kind of half fit, um, I played a bit of football. I used to play a bit of football for my hometown of Yakandanda in the TDF, in the TDF, what is that, what is that comment? That's what they all say. That's right, yeah, I know. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a picture to prove it, but Glenis, somewhere on my wall. Oh, yeah. Well, he's living in my lane. Yeah, me too. Just blown out. That's why I've got to explain it. It doesn't look like that. I know. Anyway, stop that. TDFL, uh, pretty combative league. It was a pretty brutal kind of combative league. Uh, there were some pretty, uh, what you call, well-held grudges between towns, like towns that didn't get along, and then there was, there was players who, who didn't really get along with each other. So you knew that when you went out to play, like if you were playing like a Mitter or um, a Kiwa Sandy Creek or maybe Dedaray Mount Beauty, pretty much anyone actually in the league, didn't matter who, maybe not Thaguna and Talangata, they were pretty soft, we didn't worry too much about them, but um, you knew at some point that in the game you were going to get hammered by someone somehow, or at some point, some clown could just kind of light a fuse and it'd just explode and erupt and be on for, it, for everyone. And you sort of played with that, with that reality in the back of your mind. That was the environment of the Talanga League. I know it, it, sounds, uh, it sounds dramatic, doesn't it? Um, but it was real. Um, I, once, I once came to in a hospital at about uh, 10 p.m. that night after being knocked out by a lad that I was tagging uh, for the day. It was my job to tag him. And I think I lasted about two minutes into the game when he realized uh, what I was there to do and he just shut my day down. And uh, that was that. It's actually, it's one of Sandy's favorite stories. If you want to see the depth of our marriage and, and where it's at, uh, go and ask her about the day I got knocked out at Dettering Mount Beauty. She loves to tell that story, mainly because it's just pouring humiliation on me. But anyway, that's all good. Anyway, knowing, knowing that, knowing that about that, knowing that you were playing football in that kind of environment uh, against people who had no issue with, with you know, giving you a nap uh, for the rest of the day, it was always kind of comforting before the game just to look around the rooms and just kind of clock and, and just go, yeah, that's right, that dude's playing near me this week. We had some people in our team, uh, some lads in our team, and their, and their presence near you on the football uh, field just emboldened you. It, 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 you played a little harder when you knew that they were, they were there backing you up. Um, you probably sledged a little harder, I don't know. Um, you knew that if anything got off the chain, they were there, they were just going to put a lid back on it because they could. That's, that's what they were capable of doing. And everybody knew that they could because their abilities, uh, their names, their reputations, uh, they just they were well known because they were, they were well exercised. The stories of their football capabilities, the stories of their physical exploits, if we want to put them that way, were kind of folklore in the club and throughout the league. And wherever it was, it was like a Heath Mooney or a Steve Murphy or a, or a Paul Walk, these kind of guys, their presence near you, their presence with you meant that you played with another level of confidence, with another level of boldness. And I was thinking about that, and that's the kind of confidence, the kind of willingness and the kind of security, uh, if I can use the analogy like that, to stretch it that far, that Paul wants to ignite into the Colossians as he reminds them of the caliber and the name and, 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 and who it is that is present amongst them. 
who Paul will go on to say, is not just the one who saved them personally, but is the one who is the head of the body. He's, he's the one who is in relational unity and, and instruction with this whole community of God's people. He's going to describe just who that is to the Colossians so that as they seek to live their lives out faithfully in a culture and an environment that at times uh, wants to derail their confidence, but wants to give them a little faith nap, if I can put it that way, maybe push them to the sidelines a little bit, maybe not with a well-timed forearm to the face, but, but with some well-constructed arguments that sound more plausible than perhaps what, what we're reading in our Bibles, with, with some opinions that just sound so... You know, heck, look at this guy. He's just so loving. Maybe what he's saying is right or, or some kind of practices or, or whatever it is. Paul is pushing across the, uh, the, the CV of Jesus, that he is sufficient, that he is supreme in all of life's um, dimensions and realms, that he's relevant and appropriate for every situation and environment that we find ourselves in. Well, last week, as John alluded to, we looked at how Jesus is the uh, invisible God made visible. Um, uh, If you want to know what God looks like, you just look at Jesus who comes to us and we, and, we, and we get to encounter Jesus through the eyewitness accounts of his life, given by those who, who were convinced by the fact that he was the invisible God made visible by what they saw, by what they heard, by what they encountered, by what they touched in the, in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. They were left with no doubt that this was God made visible. Jesus puts flesh and personality on this invisible God so that we might... We might know him relationally fully and encounter him like that fully and completely. And now, as I said, what Paul wants to do is describe the eternal divine uh, status, quality, uh, ranking of Jesus, his supreme standing of power and authority, um, the relevance and, and relationships that he has over all things. In fact, the divinity of Jesus, really. In fact, on six separate occasions uh, in these five verses, in five verses here, Paul uses the word uh, panton, which means all things, which translates for all things, or on one occasion he uses pasin, which is the same word group, but it means everything, to capture how Jesus is involved in the creation of all things, of everything, in sustaining and, and holding together all things. Uh, including things like the redemption of their souls, the creation of the church, which they are now a part of. There is not one detail of anything that is outside the scope, um, the authority, the control, the power of Jesus. He's, he's present in it. And his presence, uh, if we recognize who he is, should provide us the confidence to live uh, our, our faith out well in environments. Hang on a minute. Oh, turn myself on. Paul starts with a word picture, uh, a metaphor, firstborn. This, this does not mean, uh, as some people have interpreted, and I think disingenuously, dishonestly, that Jesus is the first created being that there was a time when he was not that was a little song that the that the Arians used to sing in the third or fourth century there was a time when he was not um yeah rather what this describes is is his rank his his position his relationship to creation it's 
like that of the firstborn. Uh, it's, it's, it's all his. Jesus has the right of ownership and operation over creation. While the phrase firstborn can and does refer to, if you like, the, the historical biological order of children as they're born into the family, there is a firstborn son, firstborn child. But be, what happened was because of the attribution of, of the preeminence, you know, the stature of the firstborn and how that firstborn had the preeminence of rights in the family to inherit uh, you know, more than the others would inherit. This, this, this term firstborn, this phrase, took on uh, a, a significant uh, metaphorical meaning to describe, uh, paint a picture of something. In Exodus 4, uh, 22, Israel is called by God his firstborn. This is Israel's place amongst the nations. Their, their rank, if you like, uh, they're not the first nation ever to be, you know, arise in the history of the world, but their rank and their position in the nations is one of firstborn. Israel will be the heir of all of God's promises. It's a title that carries this, this loads of imagery. And God says of David in, in Psalm 89, 27, that I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted king on the earth. So while David was not the first king ever to um, be in the world, and he certainly wasn't Israel's first king, he has been given the title firstborn because he's going to be the most exalted king. His kingship, uh, his, his lineage, his kingship will be the heir of all of God's promises. David is the king par excellence until Jesus turns along, of course, and, and then he, he's kind of the greater king than David. The meaning of firstborn uh, took on a picture that could be applied to something to say uh, that just as a firstborn son has, has, is the heir to all that the father is and all that the father has, so Israel is the heir to all of God's promises, so David is the heir to all of God's promises, so Jesus is like the firstborn, not to just some promises or that, but to over-creation. Jesus holds the legal claim of ownership to the entire cosmos. He is like that of a firstborn. Creation is his by right. He is the heir of all things, and all things will one day be set at peace under his universal rule. As the writer of Hebrews makes explicit, in the last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Now, the reason that Jesus gets this title firstborn, the one who inherits everything, the one who has you know, um, ownership over everything, is because it's, it's, it's all his in the first place. Paul says of the firstborn there, oh, you got me, you clocked me. Good man. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. It's another staggering claim, and it kind of comes in this threefold um, repetition. And firstly, what we find there is that in him, in Jesus, all things were created. That is to say that Jesus is the location of 
creation. His mind conceived of it, designed it. So if it exists on heaven, if it exists in earth, whether it's visible, whether it's invisible, uh, if it's a spiritual reality, a scientific reality, a physical reality, if it holds a throne of power, a position of authority, it owes its design, its origin, and its existence to Jesus. He thought it up. He is the mind, the location behind these things that have been created. All things are created in him means that Jesus is not just the creator, but the controlling reality of creation. He has determined the design and and the function of these things. And everything in the universe is conceived in Christ and moves and operates in relationship to Jesus. It finds its meaning by the fact that that it's related to Jesus. And all of the entirety of this cosmos, from an atom of helium to a constellation of atoms known as Hercules, Corona, Borealis, uh, the Great Wall, did not just remain an idea in the mind of Christ, some kind of wishful thinking, some unobtainable desire. Oh boy, I wish I could create that... um, outrageous image from space beyond his capabilities it came into existence through the power of Christ as Paul says all things have been created through him Jesus is the agency through which all things come into existence Jesus is the creative power and that's how John starts his gospel account about Jesus who he describes there as the word that the logos the eternal wisdom the Uh, behind the world in the beginning was the word Jesus and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was nothing was not anything made that was made he's he made it all through Jesus all things are made the writer of Hebrews dedicates the whole first chapter of his book all the way through to the eighth verse of chapter two to this claim that jesus all things are made through him all things seen and unseen microscopic and cosmic physical and spiritual biological uh, geological even human demonic jesus created all of these things i was thinking about these I was thinking about the invisible realities of the universe. And our minds often go to spiritual things, spiritual invisible things. But here here Paul is also thinking about the invisible things that govern and keep the universe running, like the Archimedes principle, principle of density and buoyancy, so-called because of a mathematician, 3rd century BC, he's taken a bath and he wrote down what was going on when you immerse an object in water with respect to pressure and water displacement. Archimedes, the dude in the bath, discovered this law and described this law, wrote this stuff down 300 years before Jesus walked the earth. He discovered it, he wrote it down, he certainly didn't create it. He didn't create the laws of density and buoyancy. Jesus did. Or the law of uh, the conservation of energy. 
Now, I got into a bit of a conversation with Nick about this earlier, and I don't know where I landed because I, I don't understand these things. And I was saying, oh, man, I'm into this stuff, but I've been reading about it. But anyway, it, that states that energy can neither be uh, created nor destroyed, but it can be transformed from one form to another. And since energy can, cannot be created or destroyed, the amount of energy present in the universe always remains constant. Now, as I said, I don't understand that at any level, but Julius Robert Mayer does. He who discovered it, he thinks he does. But while he described this law, he didn't create it. Jesus did. Jesus wrote the laws of temperature and energy and atrophy into the fabric of the universe. And because he did, in a lovingly ironic way, proved Julius's discovery just slightly flawed. Energy can be created by Jesus it does have a creation point every time we discover some hidden law or reality or part of the universe uh, we just lose our minds at how clever we think we are look what we found look what we discovered look what we made and all we're doing is finding something or copying something that Jesus just made and Paul goes on all things were created for him all things are created in him all things are created through him all things are created for him now for him does not mean that jesus needs creation from a helium atom to this great wall uh, borealis coronis whatever it's called to pump his tires up the godhead was not sitting around one day uh, when the eternal word uh, decided that um, the, the the worship and the love and the praise and the presence of the Father and the Holy Spirit was inadequate, that, that, that he, he needed to make some stuff to add you know, to, to, to their well-being, to their, their sense of purpose or whatever. That did not happen. What happened is they said, let's share, let's go public with our glory, with what we experience, and let's, and let's share that and go public with that with something other than ourselves so that they might encounter what we encounter deep and profound joy and delight and meaning that just explodes with worship creation is an overflow of love listen to the language in genesis let us let us let us create why what's the what's the intake so that we might bless created blessed created blessed humanity in our image created blessed John Piper says, when God created the world, he did not create out of any need or any weakness or any deficiency. He created out of fullness and strength and complete sufficiency. And Jonathan Edwards says this, tis, old English, tis no argument of the emptiness or deficiency of a fountain that it is inclined to overflow. You get that? That's a beautiful picture that, 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 of the, that God wasn't needy when he created. So creation is not trying to improve the glory of Jesus or build up his self-esteem. It does not, but it does point toward it. It does allow us to see it and savor it. And in showing us his glory and, and in being for Jesus' glory, it invites us into knowing and in, in, in experiencing joyfully and confidently understanding the nature and the character and the goodness of the God who designed it all. So every time you, know, you bite into a nice juicy steak, 
That should just warm your heart with affection for God who created, you know, red meat to meet taste buds. There is nothing in creation that is not Jesus's. There is nothing, or tofu if you don't eat red meat. Um, then there is nothing in or outside his presence or power. And so, so think about that. That's what makes the misuse of our existence and the design of creation, the misuse of that, sin. That's what sin is. That's why Paul calls us alienated and hostile because we misuse what God has given us and we, and we misrepresent who we are and so we paint ourselves as being alien and hostile toward God in our mind doing evil which is another sermon for another day. Uh, if we keep moving through this passage, we might get there in two weeks' time. All things were created in and through and for Jesus, and whenever we step outside that design and that purpose, that is what the Bible calls sin. We are elevating ourselves into the place of God. We are giving ourselves the title uh, of firstborn without it being given to us, which is what Jesus does later. But here in Colossians, Paul isn't finished. Verse 17, and and he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In verse 17, Paul kind of summarizes everything that he said so far by, by reasserting Christ's universal preeminence. Jesus has precedence over all things in terms of time and stature. He is before all things something that Jesus made clear in his time on earth uh, when he was you know, busy making the invisible God visible. On one occasion in John 8, 58, while discussing the nature of his authority to do and to say the kind of divine things, the kind of divine prerogative that you have when you're making the invisible God visible, uh, he says things there like, if you keep my words, you will never see death. And, and if you really knew God appropriately, then you would see that God and I are the same. These are the kind of things that are being said in this chapter. And the religious leaders perceive, see very clearly that Jesus is, is attributing divinity, is calling himself God. And they're, like, they're offended by that, and they call him out. What are you, who do you make yourself out to be? Are you seriously trying to tell us that you're God? And in the course of his defense, Jesus says of himself, truly, truly, I say to you that before Abraham was, I am. Not only does Jesus say that he existed before a dude who lived like 1,500 years before this moment took place, he describes himself using the name that God gave to himself in Exodus 3, I am. A name that describes the uncreatedness of God. The name that describes the permanence of God. The self-existence, self-determining nature of God. He says, that's me. Jesus claims eternal existence. He is before all things. The firstborn is before all things eternally. But more than that, Paul says that Jesus is a kind of divine glue, spiritual gravity, spiritual force, if you like, that holds everything in creation together. Uh, Early uh, 20th century evangelical Anglican Bishop of Durham, uh, H.C.G. Mule. Now, you know know you've made it when you've got three letters with dots behind them, and that's how you're introduced. He says of this verse, Jesus keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. 
I wrote that in my Bible. That is beautiful. I'm reading a, a book by Richard Dawkins at the moment. Uh, it was given to me by uh, the players at Melbourne United because they think it's funny to give the chaplain a book written by the world's most famous atheist for Christmas. Well, at least I think, well, at least they thought it was funny. Like they all kind of laughed when I opened it up. Oh, look at that. What are you going to do with that? I'm going to read it. And in chapter four, Dawkins, uh, in his charming way, charming wit that Dawkins has, discusses what things are made of essentially atoms, but atoms and their nucleuses and all these things that whiz around in atoms are made up of space, it turns out. This is what I've learned. There's more space in things than matter. And in that space are forces and fields and bonds with electrons and protons and neutrons, uh, all kind of chaotically but very purposefully operating to keep the atoms apart and hold the object together so that something with more space actually appears like it's solid and can operate as a solid or a liquid or a gas or, or however the little things are made up. It's quite amazing. Now, as I was saying, Nick, don't send me an email saying that is by far the worst summation of physics I've ever heard. I, I'm not pretending uh, to be a physicist, but neither is Dawkins a theologian. And at the end of his chapter, Dawkins, in his lovingly cynical way, says, if these holy books, the Bible, were really written or dictated or inspired by an all-knowing God, then don't you think it's a little odd that they don't tell us about the details of physics, of what things are made of, useful stuff like that? End of chapter 4. God can't be can't really be an all-knowing creator of all things because he didn't include a physics lecture in his self-disclosure. Jesus didn't sit down with, with John and say, oh, John, let me explain the chemistry of how I turn water into wine, how I turn water atoms into wine atoms. But the purpose of the Bible is not physics or chemistry. It's revealing the nature of God who he is, what he's like. This is the God who created everything. We're getting introduced to his personality, his character, what he's like and how we should live in his presence. And what Paul is telling us is this incredible God of the universe is amongst us in Jesus. Live accordingly. Think about that. Think about the descriptions that we've just run through here about who Jesus is and the Christian message, Christian gospel is he's in a personal relationship with you. How are you living? God does not need you to know everything and you don't need to know everything. You just need to know one thing or more precisely one person, God who created and holds all things together. And knowing this one thing means that you know something about everything. I know, it's like a Dr. Zeus book. Who owns it? sustains it, cares for it all, you can know him personally. It's, it's Jesus. We can know that God is not a divine watchmaker, as some people say, starting things off and then just stepping back and letting them run. Christ continues to sustain the whole universe in which we live. The phrase hold all things together is more than just about preserving, you know, this preserving power. It conveys the idea that Jesus is uh, the, the, the rationale of creation. Jesus is the, the rhythm and reason of 
creation. Jesus is the very operational principle controlling the cosmos. That's the kind of imagery that we have here. And if all of this is true of Jesus, it means that you surely have nothing to fear when it comes to trusting your future, yeah? Trusting your life into Jesus' care. This CV about Jesus is the basis for your hope. Who your very life is, is now secured in. This Jesus has no rivals, has no equals. There's nothing that's keeping him awake at night with a problem that he can't solve. So Paul writes to the Colossians in Rome, and by extension you and I, and, and by extension these, uh, to, the, to, the, to the Christians in Rome, not the Colossians. But, you know, there could have been Colossians in Rome visiting, and they might have heard this letter. What can separate us from the love of Christ? What can overpower the risen Lord Jesus who conquered death and now sits with the Father holding the universe together with, with the word of his power? The same word, the same Jesus, who at some point through the gospel came to you and said, you are mine, you are mine, you are mine, you are mine, you are mine. You are, you, we are now in this relationship together. You've heard the gospel. You've responded to this message about my death for your sin and now I am making you like a firstborn. Everything about me is now yours. Who can separate you? Nothing, no power and no act of stupidity. Looks down at that full mason, look at him. Just lost his mind at his wife again. Oh, what does that mean? Well, I will counsel him and not condemn him. And he will be able to walk back into that bedroom and apologize for the insecurities in his life because he's secure in me. You see how it works? Is there something more powerful? Can you outsin his grace? Can, you, can a force take his throne from him that he's sitting on? Jesus is pictured as just kind of casually sitting beside the Father. Not casually. Can something put the risen Christ back in the grave? sever his eternal status, create chaos in the one who brings order? Can something destroy the peace that Jesus has made between us and God through his work on the cross? This is Romans 8. This is what Paul is going through in this Romans 8. He says, let's list the candidates. Can tribulation and distress and persecution or famine or nakedness, which is you know shame and poverty or danger or the sword? And these are all things that have taken a run at Paul. These are all things that have tried to... Have tried to you know, make Paul take a faith nap if you like. It's, he's still held in place. Peace is still his. This is not theoretical. This is a lived out experience of Paul. Paul is, he says, more than a conqueror. He's able to conquer concerns, his fears, his anxieties, not because of his greatness, his ability to understand chemistry and physics and, and the madness of political and religious leaders that are imposing their will on him but because of the greatness of the one that he rests in, because of the greatness of the one who put the whole universe together is now with him, whose presence fills him with security and peace and trust. Paul's not done in Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, depth, nor anything else in all, all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. 
Now that's the reality that Paul is pushing across the table to the Colossians as, he, as, he's, as he's describing Jesus. Look, if this, if this is who has your life, what's coming to take it? You can trust in Jesus alone because he has no rivals. They, they are all just his creation. They exist because he lets them. They rule because he lets them. And what Paul is seeking to establish in the Colossians and, and what he's trying to establish in you and I is a sense of confidence in Jesus. So that we might play with confidence. So that we might go out and when you read a book written by Richard Dawkins, you, you kind of you read it for what it is. Just a dude swimming in the shallow end of the pool. What in the world should move you from the gospel, the news that Jesus faced the penalty of your sin, so that you could, and, and he gets into this later in the letter, so that you could too have the title of firstborn. He, he, when, he, when he starts to talk about the church, he talks about how Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. So there's going to be others who come, who in his name have that same status. The news that Jesus has made peace with your soul through the defeat of sin, the sin, as we said, this idea that you are powerful, that you call the shots, that you are God, and that God should explain himself to you, that has been replaced with the presence and the power of Christ in your life through the work of the Spirit. And so the question is this. Like, do you, if you are a Christian, do you actually live like that? Like, do you walk around like the, like the person that we just described walks through life with you. I, I know at times I don't. I know I roll back into my own strengths and capabilities. I've got to read this verse again. I've got to go back to this. Do we know Jesus like that? Like you don't need to know everything about marriage, about work, about oncology, about the housing market, about whatever it is, about wars in the Ukraine, about cultural movements. You just need to know one thing. Christ in your life and know that he is uh, in all things, through all things, and all things are for him. Let's pray. Loving God, we want to thank you um, that you that that the invisible God made visible all the power of the of who you are moves towards us in Christ, not to crush us, but to to lift us up, to bring us into peace, to bring us into relationship with you. Um, our minds can be overwhelmed as we, as we actually think about that. And they should be. This is awe. This is worship. This is what it is to respond to the one who created all things, who comes to recreate uh, broken and sinful people into heirs of the kingdom, into people who are going to inherit and be with and know the goodness of God forever. And we just want to give you thanks for that this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.